0: She said, Taylor, how am I supposed to feel at home anywhere when the word that the world uses to describe me literally means someone who is without a home?
1: That's Taylor Smith, founder of Belong Together, on this episode. Put your faith to work. This is the Bold Idea Podcast, with ideas, interviews, and inspiration to bring your bold ideas to life. Here are your hosts, Larry Gates and Armin Asadi. Welcome to another episode of The Bold Idea Podcast. This is your co-host, Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. And we're here to help you put your faith to work and bring your bold ideas to life. This is The Bold Idea Podcast, and we're so glad you're taking a few minutes just to, well, hopefully get some great inspiration. And uh, and we've got a, a terrific guest lined up for you today. But before we do that, I want to welcome Armin back from Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Barely survived. Barely surviving. Kidding, the guy's yeah. just fresh off the plane. Well, not quite fresh, but. Uh, it's less than 48 hours. Yeah, yeah, so he's still working it, working through the uh, jet lag. Yep. But uh, <laughs> Armin got to slap the rear end of an elephant. That's right, a- after it charged me. <laughs> <laughs> so you had this little baby elephant kind of coming out. Yeah, you. it was
2: like a one year old elephant, and you're in this uh, elephant orphanage where you kind of stand around this. They visited an elephant orphanage. Yeah. How sweet. And, and so. <laughs> so you're, you're you're in this small area and everyone stands around. Literally a piece of rope—that's the only thing separating you and the elephants, right? And so you know they do their mud bath and drink bottles of milk and whatever. And so then they'll come close to you and whatever. It was just—it was just one of those normal African experiences. And then all of a sudden, this this elephant just whips back and looks at me like it was angry and I didn't know <laughs> why. And then all of a sudden. It, Turned and charged me, and there's a guy that's standing between me and this elephant, who is a part of this wildlife refuge thing. All he did was literally take a step back and lift the rope up to give this elephant easy access to me. <laughs> it's like, thanks, man. Really appreciate your help here. And so, so he lifted the barricade yeah. so that you could. Oh, yeah, the barricade. <laughs> <laughs> the he, quarter inch of rope. He didn't want the rope to be damaged. <laughs> exactly. I was like, thanks, thanks for saving the rope there, buddy. And I, so I just, all I could do is I jumped back and then all of a sudden I saw it go by me. So I decided to slap it on the button and say, good game. <laughs>
1: (laughs) i'm i'm guessing maybe that elephant listened to one of our podcasts (laughs) yeah that's what it was i'm saved by the elephant well yeah that's great well it's good to have you back Armin, and um we uh we have a you know like maybe this is africa day you know because we have a guest who's (laughs) on our program here coming up who has uh has been to Africa and has been changed by it. You know, a few weeks ago, we had the opportunity to visit with John Griffith of the American Refugee Committee, and we talked about why the global refugee crisis matters. And today, we're going to talk to someone who's kind of down at the trenches, right at the, you know, zero-foot level, working with refugees in Africa, but also um, back home. And we're going to talk about that, a young millennial, Who's got a lot of ir- a lot of irons in the fire, but a lot of passion uh, for sure. this, and I think you're going to get a lot from this, Taylor Smith was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and has always had a love for people's stories, which is what led her to getting her degree in journalism from Indiana University. She went on to work as a reporter for The Oregonian and has spent the last three years working with university students in Rwanda. But she's now starting her own nonprofit, Belong Together. Now, when I say starting, I mean like literally starting. She doesn't have her website up or anything. (laughs)
2: She just filed for the IRS. Exactly. And
1: so uh, this is like sometimes a bold idea can't even wait for a website. And uh, so she's focused on the spiritual mentorship of refugees, and we're just so delighted to have Taylor Smith join us on this Bold Idea podcast.
0: Thank you, Larry.
1: So glad to have you here and be part of it. Now, uh, you've had quite an interesting, um, interesting story moving from, well, you know what, I'm going to stop right there. And I, and I want to, I know you have a big concern about people's stories, but let's, let's hear your own
0: wonderful i was born and raised in portland oregon only child and my parents were my best friends with that i was so close with them that my greatest fear in life was that i would lose them Mm. and as god would have it in my story i did lose both my parents at a young age and with that loss i found that god has really drawn me into other people's stories in a way that's allowed me to find from my brokenness well, how old a way were you to connect with people.
2: When you lost your parents.
0: I was thirteen when I lost my mom and had just turned eighteen when I lost my dad. Ouch. Yeah. Definitely a different story than I was expecting. And as an only child who relied on my parents, it was quite a whirlwind.
1: Yeah to lose your, you know, two two best friends for you in such a short period of time as a teenage girl.
0: Yes.
2: Was it? Uh, sorry, I don't. I, I don't want to go too deep on this. Uh, I, I'm just curious. Were, were, were they very unexpected accident type deaths, or what happened?
0: Yes. So my mom battled ovarian cancer, which she had for four and a half years. So from my earliest memories, as a nine year old on, there were pretty much of my mom with cancer. Mm. But with that, she was such a vibrant woman, and in her battle, she really showed me what it meant to be present and to be one that lives life fully, even with tomorrow being unknown. For my dad, however, it was unexpected. He passed away of a heart attack while doing something that he loved so much, which was swimming. So I think that, mm. that death was almost harder for me to internalize because it was so unexpected.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I yeah. share with you, my mom also had uterine cancer and passed away from that. So mm. it's hard to lose. Yeah. It's hard to lose a parent and especially hard to lose both. Um, yes. So how, how did you process that? After after at age 18, you're without your parents. What, what came next for you?
0: Oh, I'm... Um, I didn't really know how to process. As my mom modeled to me with cancer, she put a smile on her face and just moved forward. And that was really the only coping mechanism I had. I went on to school at Indiana University, and with that, went to school where no one knew me. And I was not one who was willing to tell my story. So I was really struggling on my own. And with that, I turned to a lot of things that weren't very healthy in order to cope, Um, really abusing my body through over-exercising, eventually developed into an eating disorder, had a lot of things in my path that I used in harmful ways. Mm. And it wasn't until someone asked me about my relationship with my Heavenly Father that I came to know God and learned about healing through the Trinity.
1: So, Which were radically you, changed my life, <laughs> yeah, did you grow up in a Christian family, or was this new to you then?
0: Sort of I grew up in a Christian household, but we only went to church on Christmas Easter and a few Sundays in between so i' that's not a relationship with God <laughs> in my mind or as I know it right. now, so no, I was really unfamiliar with God, especially the idea of God as a father,
1: uh-huh, and how did that how did your own um relationship with your dad then kind of translate that for you as you discovered who God was as a father for you?
0: Great question. In fact, my relationship with my dad, who pretty much became my Mr. Mom after my mom died, we were such good friends, but at the same time, he did a lot of things that left me wounded and feeling abandoned Mm -hmm. throughout our four years after my mom died. He was gone about every other week Um, He was dating a woman in a different state. And with that, it left me feeling very vulnerable. And so after his death, I had a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, really resentment towards my dad. So when I began to know God as a father, it was healing and forgiveness that I learned in that relationship that allowed me to find forgiveness with my dad in a time where I couldn't have a conversation with him. Uh, The Lord really revealed to me a lot about him being an earth uh, a heavenly Father who always says that we are lovely and beautifully made because he made us and that we belong to him hmm.
1: now i 'm curious you 're a, a west coast girl grew up in Portland, Oregon, and yet you went to a midwest school what What was your thinking there?
0: Yes, so my dad actually went to Indiana University and I grew up hearing stories of how much he loved his time there. When he had a swimming reunion, he was on the swim team at IU back in the day when it was really the elite place for swimming in the world. I saw this school and thought, wow, this is amazing. I would love to go here someday. And lo and behold, I did. It was where I ended up feeling most at home too, even though it was far away from home.
1: So it was kind of like your dad's homecoming, discover your real father
0: oh yes larry that's a profound way to say it absolutely and at the same time knowing that my dad had a story there and that god had his own story for me there
1: so talk about that story what what did you hear that you needed to hear
0: during my time at indiana university it was really a space where i i had a blank slate in terms of not being in a place where I grew up, not being surrounded by people who knew my story. And with that, being able to have an environment where I had the space to surrender my broken pieces to God and to ask Him to write my story. When I first arrived there to go to school, my dad had been an athlete there. I decided to be an athlete there too. I was really trying to live into the story that my earthly father had set before me. But it came to a point where I felt so broken and that I really couldn't carry on on my own strength. And in surrendering my broken pieces, God really showed me the story that He had for me there was to take those broken parts of my identity, what I saw as just really something that couldn't be used. He showed me how He was going to use it and use it in a place where He would allow my identity as an orphan as someone who lost their home to enter into a space where i could have conversations with people who had felt displacement and felt maybe abandoned as well and that started in college and then has continued on until today
2: so that's how from if i'm if i'm hearing that correctly that's how you got on to your mission that you have today
0: yes that is a huge part of what has- has allowed me to feel a strong sense of connection with the refugee community, in particular, the refugee community from Central and East Africa, where I've spent time throughout the last three years.
2: All right, so tell us about your mission. What's your
0: mission? Yes, so God has given me a special love for those who have lost their families and lost their homes, which has really drawn me to work and walk alongside refugees, especially young refugees. I'm currently in the process of starting a nonprofit. Called "Belong Together," focused on spiritual mentorship of refugees.
2: So, I, I I'm a refugee, so I, obviously this puts a smile on my face. But um, what it, what is it about refugees in Africa specifically that's leading you down that path?
0: Absolutely, yeah, and I wonder you, if how that did, that did you get there from here? You know, yeah, because
2: Portland, Oregon, Africa. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: So um, shortly after I graduated from college and a few years out of work, I got a call um, from a former boss of mine to see if I could help with storytelling at their nonprofit, which worked with university students and young entrepreneurs in East Africa. I'd never imagined myself in Africa before. So that's originally what led me there. And it was during my time there that I first got to go to a refugee camp. About a third of the students that I worked with in that program were refugees from the Democratic Republic of Congo who've lived in refugee camps in Rwanda since 1997. So these camps have been around for a long time. And it was really my experience in those refugee camps that opened my eyes to the refugee experience, much different than hearing about the refugee experience from media.
1: So you went over there, not knowing fully what to expect, I'm guessing.
0: Oh, no idea.
1: No idea. And how long were you there?
0: My first time in Rwanda, I was there for two weeks. And over the last three years, I've been back five times. And Mm -hmm. since then, I've developed a really strong connection with the resettled refugee community in Portland. In fact, it's really the community who I spend most time here with in Portland. So I've I've gotten to know more about the refugee experience in Portland as well. Mm Mm-hmm
1: after your first experience with the refugees there in Rwanda, what what was the biggest thing that you didn't expect that you you weren't prepared for?
0: Uh, You know, something I didn't expect was that in a place that most people would consider as such a difficult place to live, such a, a place of pain and hardship, that there would be such a presence of joy. I think that contradiction is extraordinary because in our economy, we equate pain and suffering with an attitude and disposition that would be very negative. And what I experienced there was something that was so vibrant. And to me, that could only be explained by a joy that comes from, from God and from God's economy. Mm-hmm.
2: So are these people that you're saying that you saw the joy from them while they're in these refugee camps that don't have much to offer, um, are are they predominantly Christians that have deep faith in God and that's kind of what you saw giving them that joy or was it something else? Yes.
0: So I've been to two of the five main Congolese refugee camps in Rwanda and these two camps, the people there are predominantly Christian and quite a big Seventh-day Adventist community. So I think that background leads to that. But I also notice that there's just a spirit within them of resilience, of hope. Beyond the hope that we kind of say nonchalantly that we have hope in something that there seem to be something very deep, and I believe that that depth of hope and joy is only born from the deep caverns that have been carved in our lives through pain. And with that, they allow the joy of the Lord to really fill them up and it just shines. It just shines.
1: Yeah, you know, that's really astonishing. Uh, Taylor, a couple of weeks ago, we had John Griffith from the American Refugee Committee. We asked him a similar question, what was surprising to him? And he pointed out the exact same thing, the amount of people where you actually see joy on their faces because the American media... Uh, it really, just promotes the the sad stories, the the dep- yeah. the depressing look, the and, and plays to that doesn't doesn't necessarily show where there's actually communities of joy even amidst uh, a lot of pain. It doesn't sell yes. well for the news cycles, I guess.
0: <laughs> exactly. The, I learned this in journalism school, um, which they didn't necessarily want to promote, but if it bleeds, it leads. And that really is yeah. how most of our media works yeah. in terms of getting clicks and likes it has to be the most provocative, the yeah. most heart-wrenching thing. And yet there's so much joy. I'd really be hard-pressed to talk to someone who's visited a refugee camp and not come away with some amazing stories of joy that they didn't expect.
1: Now you mentioned earlier that this was a, a transformative experience for you personally, but talk about give us the contrast of the before Taylor and the after Taylor. Uh, get us an idea of what was some of those elements of transformation that you went through.
0: Ooh, that's a great question, Leary. I think before I visited a refugee camp, I had really defined my thing or myself by things. I had lost and those were really things that um, were so heavy and in, in my backpack that really burdened my heart. And here I go to a refugee camp where everyone in this community has lost their, their homeland, um, lost their home, lost family members, lost their belongings. And yet in this place of loss on so many levels, they, seemed to have this, this spirit of of being found. And I saw how their faith was something that couldn't be taken away from them. Seeing that, not only seeing it, but hearing in conversation and, and really seeing people live that walk in a place of pain reminded me that I have that same choice as well, to be defined not by the things that I've lost, but by what I've found and who I've been bound by. And that to me is, is the Lord. I now live a life where I don't have this tendency to really hold on to material possessions or ideas. My, my hands have become much more open. What refugee community has taught me is to really live with open hands and a posture of surrender, which I can honestly say I didn't have that same posture before.
2: So going forward, Taylor, how do you apply what you're just talking about right now with the posture of surrender and the open hands to launching a nonprofit and trying to impact this community?
0: I think one of the things that I've learned is our assumption of what we think people need versus what they they say they need and in the nonprofit world or in our, our tendency to be very compassionate um, we want to go out there and and meet needs, which is a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. But I think with a posture of being open-handed, having an open mind and an open heart, allowing the Holy Spirit to direct what the needs are, it's reminded me that I want to start a nonprofit not to solve what I believe the needs are, but by walking alongside someone to meet them where they're at and to ask them what what their needs are. I think that will hopefully change the way that God is allowing me to lead.
2: So enlighten us a bit. So, I I mean, obviously you've walked alongside them uh, on their soil. You've walked alongside them here on your own soil. But so around the world you've been with them. What do you hear them saying?
0: What do I hear them saying? You know, oh, uh, there are two things that stand out to me. Um, I both heard in the refugee camps in Rwanda. One refugee camp is particularly isolated. It takes about three and a half hours from the capital city of Kigali to reach this refugee camp. And someone there in that community said, Taylor, do people know that we're here? And it was so hard for me to say to them, you know what? Um, Most of the world doesn't know that you're here, but Mm -hmm. to know... That I could respond with, um, but God does. And so I I learned right in that moment, the value of being known and being seen. Mm-hmm. And our world is really full of a lot of people crying right now, crying out to be seen and to be heard. And there, there's so much of that, um, that, it, that there's no way that we can meet all those needs. But I know that God hears and sees all these people. It's just reminded me though, of that value of being known and of relationship. So that's something that is really what I, I want to carry forward into my daily walk and as well as the the nonprofit. Another thing that really struck me, one of my best friends who was born en route from fleeing uh, the democratic Republic of Congo to the refugee camp in Rwanda. She was literally born along the side of a road as her mom was fleeing mm. um, her homeland. So has lived in a refugee camp her whole life. And I, I asked her, I said, when you close your eyes and picture home, where is that? Wondering, would she say the Democratic Republic of Congo, where her mom was from, yet she hadn't lived there herself, would she say Rwanda, the refugee camp she's grown up in? But she didn't say either of those things. (laughs) She said, Taylor, how am I supposed to feel at home anywhere when the word that the world uses to describe me, refugee, literally means someone who is without a home, Mm -hmm. who is displaced from a home. That hit me that the words that we use, they really hold power. And that word in particular, I think the word refugee can perhaps lead to a sense of feeling like you don't belong. Mm -hmm. That if you have been forced from your home, into a community where you're you're unsure of your future, how do you know where you belong? Mm. That those two ideas of being heard, seen and known and and belonging really fueled me to start this nonprofit belong together. This idea of relationship, getting to know someone's story, getting to be involved in the intricacies of daily life, having conversations about identity, faith, values, along with conversations about where do we belong. When we, as Brene Brown put it, um, belonging, when we show our imperfect authentic selves and are embraced because of that, we enter into a community of belonging. And I really feel like that's the relationship that the Lord uh, models to us, is that He embraces us where we're at for our imperfections, because of our imperfections. And to have a community like that, as a family in Christ around the world, we can, we can extend that love to each other through the spirit of belonging.
1: Wow, whole lot of embracing going on if we're embracing because of imperfections. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Well said, so, Taylor, talk about what you're doing in your ministry today. You're, you're largely focused in the Portland area right now, right, with uh, the refugees that are there. Yes. Do I have that right?
0: You do have that right. And what so are you doing got- with them? Yes, I've gotten to know the Congolese refugee community, in particular in Portland, Um, from one of the refugee camps I've been to in Rwanda. I've started a mentorship group where once a month we meet to have those conversations on identity, values, why we believe what we believe, and really seeing God in terms of all of those aspects of our lives. What's cool is that it started out as a group of 10 thinking, okay, God, is this the amount I can handle or that can really fit in my living room? And you know what? Every week, uh, more guys keep showing up. Right now, there are 13 guys who are kind of post-college age, and these young men are really leaders in their households. They're large in part the ones that are the best English speakers, have the income-earning jobs to support their families. Most of these families have eight, ten children. There's a lot of responsibility for these young men. And I found that whether it's in the refugee camps or in the resettled refugee houses in Portland in the U.S., that these young men have been tasked with a lot of responsibilities. I wanted to provide a space where they could talk about their past, talk about what they're experiencing now, and really talk about their their values as they're the ones that model to their younger siblings and the refugee community around the world about how they're choosing to live their lives.
1: This is the Bold Idea Podcast. Well, I mean, this is probably a good time to take a pause from this episode and thank our listeners who've supported the Bold Idea podcast.
2: You are the reason we exist. This is a nonprofit. That means we don't make profit off of doing this. This costs money. So, if you're the people exactly. out there that are supporting us and donating to us, you're the reason that we've been able to do this for over a year. And we'd love to be able to do this for another year or two and bring on more amazing guests. So, we would love your support. If you feel so led, just go to boldideapodcast.com forward slash donate. And thank you again.
1: I imagine some of our listeners might be sensing that God is leading them to do something about the refugee situation as well. What would you recommend to someone who they just, they're just they not sure if they need to go to Africa as you did or if maybe they could work in their local community as you are today? What are some of the practical things that somebody might do to explore if this is a bold idea that God might be laying on their heart?
0: And I'm so excited for whoever that is right now. I just want to encourage you and say, get ready for a journey, a journey that I really believe will be a blessing to your heart. There are, there are a lot of things you can do in terms of meeting physical needs, but a bold idea I want to give listeners is really to enter into relationship. I found that one of the most empowering things you can do for a resettled refugee in your community is to do something with them, particularly entering into their home. And listeners, that means it's a home where you might not speak the same language. Uh, You'll probably hear different sounds, smell, different foods that are cooking, and it might be uncomfortable. But I want to challenge you to get to that place of being uncomfortable for the sake of, of making someone else feel known and valued. I'd encourage you to do something like share a recipe, and cook a meal together. Have, have the resettled refugee teach you how to do something from their culture. Um, I t- encourage you to do something like ride the bus with someone to teach them how to get to work or the grocery store. As wonderful as it is to drop off groceries or a homemade meal, doing an activity alongside someone where you get to learn together and experience the messiness, really, of, of learning in relationship is something that will leave deep deposits. I know that experiences really leave us with a lot of memories and while physical needs are so important I believe that having conversations even conversations that seem so so basic or you're not even sure how much is caught are really important for someone to know that they are they're worthy of walking alongside of sitting next to of of holding their hands in prayer of getting to read a story with them, hearing their life story. It's something that will bless you even more. I really believe it.
2: That's awesome. You know, one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me is uh, when we were talking on the phone um, is uh, you said, if we can figure out how to love refugees, and make them feel like they belong, then we would have uh, a lot less of a terroristic threat uh, around the world. And I I don't necessarily know how you said it, but that's how I remember it. Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Oh, absolutely. And that's something that I, I really believe in. Something that I didn't realize before I visited a refugee camp is the reality of rebel groups recruiting out of camps and that is not isolated to East Africa. Um, We can see that in in communities all across the world, but out of survival and out of a need to belong, sometimes we turn to things that are unhealthy and hurtful. I think that there are a lot of rebel groups that make promises of security. There are groups that make promises of belonging. There are also groups that just uh, force people but I believe that when someone feels a belonging in a healthy community, especially when someone feels that they belong in a relationship with the Lord, in a community that is really about the radical love of God, it gives them an outlet to say no to joining a rebel group or faction. It gives them a, a stronger standpoint and values to hold on to. I think that the more we see young men, in particular choosing to become leaders in their homes and communities who lead from a posture of living like living like Jesus did that we would see terrorism go down we would see rebel groups decreasing because of the standpoint of a really young men choosing to say no to these rebel groups and saying yes to a relationship with God mm.
2: So, okay, to saying yes to a relationship with God, which makes me think about when you said yes to a relationship with God, which was when you were in college. So uh, I'm curious, do you see any uh, familiar coping mechanisms from how you behaved after your parents passed away and you were in college compared to how these refugees you know are coping with their situation?
0: I do. And there's sometimes things that are uncomfortable to talk about and say, which I I see that in the, the refugee community. And I don't think it's isolated to a refugee community either. I think we're all a little bit uncomfortable with how we cope with things sometimes. One of the biggest things I see though, is this posture of, um, of self-loathing or, or guilt, really the things that we do when we feel like we've fallen short. And that means not treating ourselves, ourselves in, in healthy ways. I know that there were times where maybe I surrounded myself with, with people who led me to make choices that, that weren't ones that, uh, that were healthy. Um, I know that I also didn't really have a will to live. And so I was willing to do things that harmed myself instead of things that allowed me to live fully in this world. I think that within communities that are really in more of a survival mode that people can do things that are perhaps more and um, end up being more harmful than helpful. I don't know if I can, I can't speak for the whole refugee community, but there are times where, where young people want to be in community and can choose to be with quote unquote, the, the wrong crowd, or crowd that tends to make more radical choices and leave behind our rational mind.
2: So, Taylor, what is the long-term vision that you have for your organization and for yourself? Like, what what is the outcome of what you are doing and are going to continue to do?
0: The vision's quite big, and because it's big, I know that God has to do it, uh, and it's, He's invited me to be part of it. But the big vision is to see a movement of God amongst the refugee community that turns nations known for corruption, war, and poverty to be nations known for peace, justice, and the extravagant love of God. Mm. I think it'd be amazing if one day you heard people talking about South Sudan, Somalia. Wow, aren't those great places to visit? Isn't, isn't mm. the presence of love there so amazing? Like, what if that was the story? Which, to people sounds crazy and you know what that's the kind of story god would write because it is crazy and it's something that only the power of his transformational love could perform
1: amen to that (laughs) (laughs) let's just finish right there that's just such a sweet offering of vision
0: yeah it is it really is i'm just like i don't
1: i don't want to i just want to let it just sit there (laughs) you know I don't want to spoil it that's right that was not (laughs) not good that is so good That's so good. I I feel like I'm coming down by asking you this question. What's your next bold idea? What are you going to be doing with your ministry? Or your life for that matter.
0: Yeah, I I really believe in the power of our testimonies and something that just like is a, a personal thing that's been on the back burner forever is this idea to really write my story of how God has redefined my life. And with that, I, I hope that I'll also be able to walk alongside so many of my honorary brothers and sisters in the refugee community to support them and sharing their stories. I think for a long time, my brothers and sisters from the refugee community have felt their stories to be something that they're ashamed of, that refugee has become a word that's, that's negative or almost bad, and uh, something that they should hide. For a while, I felt my story was something I was ashamed of. I didn't want people to know I'd lost my parents. I didn't want people to know I'd lost my home, lost my health, lost my finances. I really felt like my story was something that people not only wouldn't want to hear, but might even draw people away from me. And I've learned that that's so not true. God's love has really taught me that. He has redefined my sense of family, my sense of home, my sense of, of calling. Mm. And I think in, in realizing that and, and writing down the words of my testimony, that I pray that other young people I know who are refugees would feel inspired to write their stories too. And really, I believe it's not their story to withhold, that it's God's story for their life and that our testimonies really give him the glory. Uh, his redemption's real and he takes broken things and doesn't waste a piece. Mm,
1: I love that. So how can our listeners learn more about you or your ministry?
0: Absolutely. So right now, I my ministry is very fresh in terms of I'm just getting all the paperwork together, but I do have a personal website, which is taylorstaste.org, um, soon to become belongtogether.org for a website specific to my ministry. Um, but On my website, there's my email address. And I would love to connect with anyone wanting to learn more about how to connect with the refugee community and really how to walk alongside others in the space who feel displaced and to show them that they belong. I believe that conversations about faith, values, and identity, ones that people can shy away from because are they going to be politically correct? Um, Are they coming from a, a place of privilege and they're afraid to talk? Don't be afraid to talk. Don't be afraid to listen. It is so worth the risk to be in relationship than to avoid it.
2: Right on. Well, I'm glad you told me your website is taylorstaste.com and not Taylor State because that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I read it to someone else. So it's taylorstate.com oh. <laughs> I,
0: I've had people say that before they look at it and go, what's that? Uh, yeah, I I started off writing about food. so Gotcha. Um, okay. Insightful. Yeah, but org. Okay, so you're
2: not starting a new state in America. No.
1: <laughs> okay. The state of refugees because, yeah. you know, you need a home. Oh, oh, that's right. That's there right. There's a bold idea. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think California is looking for state, new nation status. I'll apply. Uh, Right. (laughs) Taylor, so good to have you on the Bold Idea Podcast. Thanks again for being with us.
0: Oh, Larry, Armin, thank you so much for this opportunity to share. And thank you for all your thoughtful questions.
1: Hey, our pleasure. Thanks again. What a delightful and energetic young lady that uh, Taylor Smith is, huh? What, what
2: is the word you use as soon as we effervescent. get- Effervescent. That's right. That was the best word to describe her. I love that.
1: It's exactly what she yeah, is. Yeah, when, when, when she hung up, I mentioned to Armin. yeah, pretty effervescent. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I love her spirit. I love her energy. I love her heart. She's so genuine. She's just, I, I love, I, just, I, I can probably talk to her about this thing all day long. She just has- such a positive and optimistic view of it. And it's not like this draining, exhausting conversation of something that feels so helpless and hopeless. It's the exact opposite. And I I don't care how many people are trying to tackle this issue. There's very few people who are are in it that are tackling it the way that she has with the mindset that she has and the heart that she has.
1: Well, I think when you can see and be around somebody who is in their, calling and they're, they're responding to the spirit. You see the joy of it. It's not work. It's, it's a, it's something they're living out because they really, truly have been inspired to do it. And it's inspiring, you know, regardless of whether this is something God's calling you into or not, you can appreciate being around somebody where, you know, they're on fire for their calling. And and it ought to be inspiring for each of us in our area to like, if we're not on fire in the same way, then, then say, what's wrong? What's wrong here? How come I can't show that same kind of? Uh, now you know we don't all have the same personality. We're not totally. all effervescent, right? You know? But <laughs> but but we ought to have the same kind of joy in what we're doing that we we're so committed to the idea that that's what God's called us to do,
2: right? But right. I I feel like, and this is one of those dumb opinions, and everyone can uh, dismiss really quickly. But I just feel like if if the world was moved, inspired, and motivated by the thing that truly sets them on fire, that call that moves them holistically, heart, mind, body, and soul. And rather than pursuing these worldly definitions of success, that what we see as the state of the world right now would be almost the exact opposite. I just, I, I just see so many less problems. I see so many less fights. I see so many less situations where economic development is borderline impossible. I just, I, I just, it's like my variation of seeing the movement of God in this world is seeing people pursue their call rather than pursue status or whatever the definition of success might be that they're following.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, she is definitely an, an optimist, and you like being around optimists because they have that sense of possibility and. And, and really what kind of transformational possibility God can do in a yeah. situation. But it, literally, I consider myself an optimist. I consider myself somewhat of a visionary. <laughs> but she stopped me dead in my tracks <laughs> when she talked about, you know, can you just imagine Somalia being that place where people say, wow, what a peaceful country to be in. What a joyful, yeah. you know, it was like, you know, that's... Wow, that really is transformational possibility thinking yeah. with God. What seems impossible today, we've settled so much for thinking even about nations as yes. being lost causes, mm-hmm. and in uh, in that to me was a nice wake up call. That was just like I just needed a shower. Yeah, you know, I needed to take all that grunge that I've had of my thinking about countries and even people. Yes, you know the impossible people in our lives. Yes. Perhaps get it more personal. Yeah, and with God, nothing is impossible. And in, in any kind of miraculous transformation, he can take a nation that has been soiled by years of terrorism and evil and make it into a peaceful country. And he can take a person likewise who's been selfish and and, and evil motivated and make them into a peaceful and loving and giving person. In fact, haven't we had a few guests on our lives that have described themselves that way? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and we have a co-host here who's had quite an experience of... Doing, you know, right. a, a pretty brash kind of stuff that yeah. was destructive. Oh, and absolutely. God redeemed that, and we all have our areas where we've been destructive, and just even looking at our own personal transformation on to give us hope that that's possible for others. Totally. But yet we often get in that mindset that we just say, "No, that's how they are," so they become branded that way. Hmm. And and what I heard from her when she did that was like, "I have been allowing the brand of news reports." To totally cover over the transformational opportunity of God's redemptive power. Yes. And that's what we're called to enter into. That's a bold idea right there. Right. I mean, I think that's really... To see the opportunity rather than the problem. To see the opportunity with God, all things are possible. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, oh, I would agree with you that one of my biggest takeaways from my, our conversation with Taylor is, is the vision that she gave. That was a convicting vision. It just made me, regardless of refugee or not, it just right. made me think, mean, your vision is so weak. <laughs> you need to go You need to go process this with God and stop making it logical and possible, right? Like you want the impossibility factor so that you are actually dependent on God and Mm -hmm. not your skill, your network or whatever.
1: Exactly. I love that. And and yet we kind of discount all of that and say, oh, that isn't going to happen. What can I do? Right. (laughs) It isn't about what can I do. It's about what can God do? We start imagining that possibility. We enter into it in a whole different mindset. I love this. I I really, I mean, I stopped. I just said, you know, that's kind of sacred ground right there. Because it really was, I felt. I
2: totally agree with you. Here's my other takeaway from Taylor. And I think this is an important one. Um, And there's different sermon formats that you can hear this too. Is the fact that she focuses on belonging. Mm -hmm. When you encounter people... Not unlike me, <laughs> but when you just encounter someone who is even antagonistic towards the Christian faith, you encounter people that are angry and violent and uh, w- whatever, you know, depressed and broken, um, detached and emotionally un- uh, unavailable, whatever, whatever the, that, the issue might be that a person is dealing with. More often than not, especially from a Christian perspective, they don't care what they should believe and so when we sit there and we pimp belief systems to them and say <laughs> believe 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 they don't actually care what you're saying. And when you say and what's even worse than telling them what to believe is telling them how to behave even if it's for their own sake. They still don't care, right? When you focus on the thing that every single human being on the planet needs regardless if they're black white brown purple yellow whether they are christian muslim buddhist hindu regardless of what the person is or what their background is, every single human being in this world needs to belong and they need to belong to something. Mm -hmm. And when you can lead with that belong foot forward, it's so much easier to get someone to actually believe in Christ or whatever it is, uh, whatever else it is that you get them to believe in. Even the terrorists move with the belonging foot and have a better odds of getting these people in, right? And then if you so, if you can get them to belong, you can get them to believe, then you can get them to behave, but if you try to get them to behave or believe first, you're gonna miss the whole the whole reason of you standing in front of that person. And Taylor's just got it
1: down. Yeah, well, and and she brought that into relief really by focusing on that group who yeah. have home taken away from them. They have belonging taken away from them, and that that refugee that says, "How can I think about a home when hmm. the very name." that I'm identified with means without a home, Mm. you know, and that's, that's really, really profound. And, and it, and it cuts right to the core and it, and it's had that same kind of takeaway as I heard that. And, and especially as she talked about her before and her after she went before with someone who had been dealing with the grief and the things that she had lost with her mom and her dad. And so her focus was on what she lost. And when she, went to africa and she went to these these refugee camps and she started seeing the people there she started seeing that they they actually have a joy in what they have found in mm. terms of the spirit of the lord and yeah. and it readjusted her frame from not thinking about what i've lost but thinking about the fact that i was lost and now i'm found mm. i have a home even though it may not be a physical place it's mm. a it's a home nevertheless and in A it got me th- that
2: can't be taken away.
1: Exactly. But it got me thinking about in, uh, you know, psychologists will tell you that we value things that we have
2: mm.
1: more than we value things that we want. Mm. And when we lose the things that we have, that's called loss aversion. We don't want to lose the things that we have. So yeah. we don't want to, you know, lose our relationships. We don't want to lose a, a, something that I might have acquired. We might value it even higher after I've acquired it, which mm. is why... <laughs> Which yeah. is why I hang on to stocks yeah. far too long, you know, because I own it, but I don't want to get rid of it because it's got to go up yeah. and, I, and I want it to go all the way to zero, you know. Uh, well, that's called loss aversion, right? Yeah. And, uh, and when, we, when we're when we focused on what we've lost or we focus on what we will lose, we miss giving gratitude for the things that we have.
2: Mm.
1: And, uh, and I love wow. that that was the transformation that she she talked about there. And, uh, that, that to me was a, was a great, great reminder.
2: Absolutely. I I think it's a perfect spot
1: to end this. Yeah. So we want to ask you to chime in as well and give us your thoughts. What were your takeaways? What did you come away with as you listen to this episode and uh, reach out and let us know your thoughts. Uh, visit our show page at boldideapodcast.com slash 61. Cause that's where you'll find this episode. And you'll find links to Taylor Smith's uh, websites. And, uh, also you can leave us a comment there or call our show line at 612 568 six one two five six eight four three three two. 612-568-4332. Do us a favor, share this episode with someone who might have, uh, an interest in what we talked about, who might want to be inspired by Taylor's words and, uh, We'd love for you to do that and to also give us feedback that you have. So until next week, this is Larry Gates. And Armin Asadi. Saying so long and be blessed.
0: You've been listening to the Bold Idea Podcast. To get our show notes sent to your inbox, visit boldideapodcast.com.